Thanks for tuning into Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. It's been a turbulent year in Charlottesville city government, and we are now in the midst of an election season. Mayor Nakia Walker and Councilor Heather Hill were both elected to city council in November of 2017, just a few months after the violent white supremacist rally. Their four-year terms are nearly up, and there are five candidates running in the Democratic primary to take those seats. We'll talk about that election as well as a recent expansion of voting rights. And in the second half of the show, we hear about a new play by Kelly Vendia that grapples with gender identity, family, and mental health. It might feel like we have just had an election, but here in Virginia, we have elections every year. Come November, we'll be voting for governor, lieutenant governor, state attorney general, plus a couple Charlottesville city council seats and local general assembly seats. So thankfully, today we're talking to Charlotte Renee Woods about the 2021 election cycle um, and particularly the primaries that are coming up this June. How are you doing these days, Charlotte? Recently, finally played uh, Catan for the first time last week. And now I can report as of this week, I have won for the first time against my very talented fiance. So I'm really proud. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, we got to get Jessie in on this too. I've mentioned <laughs> it to her before when she's been on the show. <laughs> oh my God. It's proud of you. <laughs> if you're like a strategy based person, it's a really good game. And I have not, I never, I didn't like play a lot of chess growing up. So if it, it employs like similar tactics in chess. So um, it's been a quick learning curve for me, but I love it. Oh, it's so fun. <laughs> Um, all right. So different kind of politics than on the uh, Catan game board. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's start by looking back at the previous election in November. Um, you know, nationally, there was a lot of anxiety about this election happening in the middle of a pandemic. But how did things go here locally? I mean, 2020's elections in general, it was just like it hadn't been done the way that it had been done before because it really just uh, ramped up the process of absentee voting to where you could simply apply for it and get it. Um, and then there were just lots of safety protocols put into place for in-person voting, which opened up early to allow for that long period of time to find the time to go do it. To, so you don't have everyone lining up on election day. And then I think in the state of Virginia, a lot of people noted that the process made voting more accessible because you had more time frame, more options, more ways to get it done. But yeah, in terms of going forward and voting again this year, I actually am planning to check in with our registrar soon and see if anything is changing, what the voting process will look like this year. I imagine it will be very similar or exactly the same just due to we are still in this pandemic. So before we talk about specific races, there was recently a move to give more formerly incarcerated Virginians the right to vote. Can you tell us about this? So it's twofold, actually. Um, <clears throat> most recently, Governor Northam changed the criteria because when you're incarcerated, then you're released. You have to apply to have your civil rights restored. And that includes like being able to vote, serving on a jury, running for office yourself, um, becoming a notary. And you previously have to have also completed like your probationary period. So it's it's like you you get out of prison, then you have to wait for a while. 
before you can apply. And then what Northam did is he reformed the criteria to where as soon as you're out of prison, whether or not you're on probation or not, you can go ahead and apply right away. You're, you're eligible. And it sort of mirrors what General Assembly, the legislative body, is working on doing. They are wanting to make it a constitutional amendment in the state of Virginia. So that way, automatically, as soon as you're out of prison, you're automatically able to, to have your civil rights restored. And so it it passed General Assembly once, but it needs to pass again and then end up on our ballots as voters as a referendum for us to vote into law. And it functions very similarly to the way that the uh, redistricting commission was established last fall. It had to get through General Assembly multiple times before we had to vote yes or no on it. So um, it's it's a long process for everyone to have a bit of input. Um, but certainly what Northam did recently, it's like a step towards that. And the reason that um, some legislators who advocate for this want it in the state's constitution is because once something's in the constitution, it's a little harder to undo. And so that would make these rights more protected for reentering Virginians versus being subject to the whims of governors because governors come and go every four years and they can um, walk back things or walk forward things, but it's not it's not lasting. You talked to a couple of residents who were formerly incarcerated. What did they have to say about this change? The residents I spoke with, they've already finished their probationary periods, so they qualify whether this Northam had done this or not. But had this change come about earlier, they would have impacted them earlier. It was really nice speaking with them, though, because they both have never voted in their entire lives. And this is a possibility for them now. And they're very excited to start figuring out, like, well, who do I want representing me and what are the issues I care most about? So like one of them, he's starting to pay attention to local school policies because he wants to think about his daughter. Um, the other guy really cares about addressing minimum wage because, you know, he noted that locally and across the nation, uh, minimum wage doesn't doesn't mean the same thing everywhere. And a lot of times it's not enough to live on in certain areas. Um, and it's such an easy thing to take for granted. But when you don't have that ability and it, you're part of a society, but you're not able to have that input, that matters. How do formerly incarcerated people apply to have their voting rights restored? Because like you were saying, with the constitutional amendment, they wouldn't have to apply, but right now you do. Presently, I believe I included a link in it in my um, article, but you go through the um, Secretary of the Commonwealth's office. So you, there's a link that you can apply to through there they'll get in contact with you. The rest of the process is more just like the paperwork side of things, but eventually the end result is the governor officially restores your rights. Knowing one, that you can apply to have your rights restored um, to the process of doing it, that's where organiz local organizations like, you know, um, Office of Aid and Restoration, like those are the types of places that are a good resource. If you're a formerly incarcerated individual, if you don't know how to do it or where to go, reach out to your local offices, your like OAR offices, because these are the places that are going to help walk you through that and be a resource for you if you're feeling like confused about anything. So yeah, that's great. We'll link the article and link those offices too in the show notes. Okay, let's turn to Charlottesville City Council. How many, uh, whose terms are up? So how many seats are open this election cycle? Um. <clears throat> Councillor Heather uh, Hill is not seeking re-election. 
Councillor slash Mayor uh, Nakaya Walker is sort of still deliberating if she wants to seek a second term or not seek a re-election. She hasn't said yes or no yet. And then we have a bunch of Democrats lining up. <laughs> so Nakaya is the independent candidate, so she doesn't have to worry about the June primary primaries right now. Um, if she is still in the race, her name will be on our ballots in November. But then the Democrats that we have, we have Brian Pinkston, who ran in 2019. Then we have uh, Carl E. Brown. He has been involved with a lot of like local nonprofits and boards in the area. We have Juan Diego Wade, who is a current uh, Charlottesville City School Board member. And he's also been involved with some things in the county. We have Yaz Washington. She is potentially, if she gets on council, could be our youngest city councilor. Um, she also has been, she has done work on other people's campaigns. Most recently, Jim Hingley, our Commonwealth attorney for the Albemarle County. And she was on Dr. Cameron Webb's congressional campaign. And then most recently, we have a man named Josh Karp, who announced a couple of days ago on Twitter that he is suddenly running and he's in the process of getting signatures. And I need to follow up with him to see how that panned out and if we need to set up a voter guide chat. So why does this primary matter? I love preaching about primaries. They're very important because the primaries are a chance to get your favorite candidate onto the general election ballot. So we might have, you know, the two winners of this Democratic primary on the ballot in November with incumbent Mayor Nakia Walker as running as an independent. Have any other independent or Republican candidates talked about throwing their hat in the ring? For city council? Not yet. Um, they still have time, but I would imagine if there's anyone else wanting to run it, they're going to be announcing very, very soon. Um, that way they have time to get themselves out there and talk about their policy platforms before primaries. So there's a chance that this June primary is really the chance that folks have to pick a candidate. There's a chance that if uh, Mayor Walker doesn't run again, that there'll be two people on the ballot for two seats. What are the big issues in this race? Okay, so one of the big issues that saturates every race I've been discussing so far has been pandemic, um, addressing the economic impact it has had on families, on businesses, on healthcare, access to resources. That is going to be one of the big topics through every single level of race from city council, board of supervisors, governor, general assembly, like it's the reality of the world that we're living in right now. For Charlottesville City Council, affordable housing continues to be a very big topic of concern here. And this is um, sort of at the same time, we have uh, consultants working with the city on establishing an affordable housing strategy, um, a zoning rewrite eventually, and finishing in re the update on the comprehensive plan, which is this large philosophical document that helps guide policies going forward. And there's this real push to put equity into the affordable housing plan. So um, those are kind of like the biggest things that have been popping out. So you mentioned that the incumbent, uh, Nakaya Walker, hasn't said whether or not she's planning to run for re-election. Um, but this week, you know, she posted a poem on social media that stirred up a lot of controversy have any of the candidates said anything about that? Do you get the sense that that might affect her decision, whether she'll run again or not? 
I don't, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot that will affect if she still wants to run or not. She's been doing this for a long time. The post that she made this week is the same conversation that she has been having this whole time. It's just this time it had some um, eye catchy words in it that um, some community members took offense to. One candidate, it was Yaz Washington, did go on to Jerry Miller's I Love Seville show, um, I think the day after Nakaya's recent post, and didn't really, didn't seem to agree with it. But again, we can't speak for Mayor Walker. Mayor Walker will tell us if she's running or not. She's very direct. Um, when she makes up her mind, we will all know. Yeah. Um, Not too long ago, we were talking about the new city manager, Chip Boyles, and his goal to stabilize the city government. It seems like one of the reasons they chose him was because this very election was looming. Um, Have any of these candidates commented on what they hope their relationship with the city manager and the city bureaucracy will look like? Um, That is something that I actually also really want to ask all of the candidates because Stabilizing the city of Charlottesville and getting things flowing efficiently is something that has been what everyone's been wanting to achieve for a while. It, it got pr- pretty bad earlier this year where they had all the council had to have all these closed door meetings because they had to figure out like, this is a leadership crisis. We have to fix this before we can even go after all the policy proposals and ideas that we have and carry out these, un- these community goals that we've been working on all this time. Something that has been coming up in conversations in recent months is that um, just making sure that council and city staff and the city manager work better together and have agreed upon rules and boundaries. All right. So this primary is June 8th. What do people need to do to be eligible to vote in the primary? And again, right now, there's there's just a Democratic primary for city council because there's only Democratic candidates signed up. So for for additional information on how to vote this year and upcoming key dates, um, go to Virginia's election website and also check the Charlottesville Tomorrow Voter Guide. I'll be, right now I'm still working through some a million candidate interviews, but I will also be adding information with key links on where to go and key dates and um, just generally how to vote this year. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Thanks for having me. Charlotte Renee Woods is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, I want to shout out another one that we think you might like. It's called Still We Rise, and it draws on oral histories collected from folks around UVA over the past 50 years. They're talking about issues regarding race, equity, and inequality at UVA. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor. For our last segment, I'm going to hand things over to our assistant producer, Tanisha Alston. Today, we're here with Kelly Vandilla to discuss her new play, Let Go of Me, put on by the Live Arts Theater here in Charlottesville. How are you today, Kelly? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what the play is about? So my name is Kelly, and I use they, them, theirs, and she, her, hers pronouns. Feel free to refer to me with either or 
flip between both of those sets. And I am originally from Santa Fe, New Mexico, and moved to Charlottesville in 2005. I went to Western Albemarle High School and spent a lot of time acting at the old Mickey Theater and the Blackfriars Playhouse in Stanton, and really love theater. I, I went to college, I studied acting at Vassar College, went to the Moscow Art Theater School for a semester abroad, and moved to New York and, and worked on a lot of independent film and theater there, and started to shift more towards designing and directing and working in film. And and after a while, I got kind of burned out. You know, I, I didn't grow up in a city. Um, it was pretty stressful for me. And so I decided to leave, and, and I spent a number of years traveling around as a nomad and, and living in Japan, walking a Buddhist pilgrimage, working on film here and there. And about five years ago in 2016, moved back to Charlottesville, Virginia, and pretty quickly became involved in live arts. Um, in 2018, I co-founded Playground of Empathy and have been doing a lot of community building arts focused work here in Charlottesville for the last few years. And I'm so honored to be having my director debut here at, at Live Arts. Um, this is the first time I'm directing a full length here. It's secret. Uh, first time I'm directing a play in I think nine years. Um, I've worked on other theater, but this is this is the real the real deal here. Um, and and let go of me is it's a play about processing. It's a play about me and how I use art to process my life, whether that's uh, trauma, whether that's my gender identity, um, and in large part my relationship with my mom who has bipolar disorder. That's, that is so amazing. That <laughs> I'm like so impressed about like just like you've been to like all over the world and now you, <laughs> what in the world made you come back to Charlottesville? It's so crazy. Oh, um, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> um are are you asking what what made me come back? Okay. Yeah. Um I didn't know where else to go, honestly. I was in Japan and I, I thought I was gonna live there for a long time. Um I got quite lonely. It's, it, it felt very isolating. I was working at a guest house, and so there were just new people coming and going so frequently and, and being, um, I guess, just being isolated there. I, I missed my people, and so I came back home to Charlottesville with the intent to stay just for a few months, maybe, and that's turned into five years. So, I mean, I could, I could understand that Charlottesville is... It feels like home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. So in the synopsis, the pandemic seemed to be a crucial part of the play. How has the past year influenced your writing process? I love this question. I think that I am most creative when I am severely limited. And I'm really excited by theater that plays with my expectations of what can happen and what will happen. And so I think that this is a really unique opportunity to work within film and theater and expectations of how we operate on a day-to-day -day basis. I spend so much time on Zoom every day. And so Zoom has become an integral part of this play. And there, there are a lot of limitations of, of 
how we're able to go through the process of creation in terms of rehearsing on Zoom or rehearsing at the theater, but in different rooms so that we're not um, with each other and, and we're able to social distance. There are a lot of strict COVID guidelines that Live Arts operates under that I'm very grateful for. Um, and it's really provided us a unique way of doing things that I don't think would would have existed otherwise. Um, when when I knew that we were going to start doing this play, I I said, all right, I got to rewrite this, not only because the first draft was four years ago and a lot's happened in those last four years, but also because I want to weave in just the, I don't know, just play around, just have fun with um, what does it mean to see a play on a computer screen or on a TV screen? What is a play? What is a film? How does my relationship, which ebbs and flows, sometimes we're in relationships, sometimes we're not with my mom, um, how does that parallel what we're going through in terms of COVID and not able to be physically present with some of the people that we love? Mm. Mm, That's so relatable. That's so beautiful. Um, As you said earlier, your play is an autobiographical piece. Is this your first autobiographical work? It's the first autobiographical work that isn't abstracted, I will say. Um, I've made a number of short films that are sort of toe the line between performance art and self-exploration through filming myself, editing, filming again, editing again, and sort of discovering who I am through that process. Um, There's also a a spiritual predecessor to this piece called Let Go Mother. It's a short film that I made a couple years ago. And, and that was based on sort of a hypothetical conversation between me and my mom, not one that actually happened. This is, this is a lot of real stuff. It's either me writing down as accurately as I can remember something that, that I lived through, or even pulling verbatim from emails or voicemails. And so it, it blends fiction and, and fact and... There's a lot of, of course, there's a lot of artistic license with this, um, but it is as honest a portrayal of that I can share of my relationship with my mom and and how I am processing that. Mm. What was it like to share such special and just like close moments of your life with this play or through this play? It's been very surreal at times. It's been very healing. Um, it's it's a unique situation, I think, as a as a piece of theater because we'll be in rehearsals, and then I can say, "Do you want me to give you the full context of of this experience? I can tell you about the days leading up to something that happened. I can tell you about what happened and how that's different from what's on the page." And so I think, like, as a playwright in this process there's a whole wealth of, of context. And it's also a question of how much do I provide? Um, I think one of those examples is there are a lot of voicemails in this piece, and those voicemails are trans from transcripts of voicemails that my mom left. And and for a while I thought, do I do I share the recordings of the voicemails with Marty, who's playing my mom, or or not? And we decided to not share them because I think that there's there's a fine line between trying to recreate something as accurately as possible and 
And I think that a lot of um, biopic films do that with historical figures when it's when it's possible, when there's um, footage or, or recordings of whomever that is. Um, but for me and, and for the, the team, the artistic team that's helping to, to tell this story, I think it's important for us to realize that this, this piece itself has a life of its own and we have to give it wings to, to fly on its own. Marty isn't my mom. I don't want her to be my mom. And I want, like, the character of Daphne is, is part of the play in a way that I think would be stifled and deadened a bit if I was really trying to just do a one-to-one reenactment of my life. I think that most translations or adaptations fail when they don't, when they aren't given breath to be their own creatures. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you or any of the rest of the cast encounter any unexpected challenges in rehearsing this piece at all? Yeah, I think that rehearsing on Zoom is a big challenge because it's hard for us to feel each other's energy. It's, it's much harder to, to respond. And, and even now, do I look at your face or do I look at the camera so it looks like I'm looking at you? Um, and then, of course, there's a delay uh, a bit, and so it's harder to, to feel out the pace of the lines. And, and for the course especially, because I wrote it as a, as a group of people that I envisioned really collaborating almost like a, a song circle or drum circle or something like that, that we would come up with the sound and the energy and the flow together. And we tried to do that on Zoom, and it was fun for about five seconds, and then it just sounded awful. Um, and, and it was really hard. I think Zoom's algorithms that try to like limit external sound really do a number when you have multiple people trying to speak at the same time and create something together. Um, so working through Zoom was really challenging. Um, of course, without like spoiling too much about the production, um, there are certain policies that Live Arts has in place to maintain social distancing for where actors can be and how actors can be working on a piece together. And that's presented a couple of really unique challenges for us. Um, and... And if you're interested in like what that actually means, there's going to be a talk back on April 14th. So so we can go into detail about the creation process then. Um, and I'll say like all of those challenges, they're reflected in the script. I was aware of them as I was creating this. And so they're woven into the piece rather than try to ignore them or push against them. I embraced them. And I think that everyone, everyone really has. Um, I think it's also a unique challenge to involve so much filmmaking in in a theater piece, um, and and that's been really exciting too. Yeah, yeah, I think it's so interesting how much foresight you have to have in creating a piece like this, especially during a time like this where everything is just so different. All right, so who is this play for, and what do you hope people will get out of it? Oh, now I'm getting emotional. Um, I think this play is for anyone who has felt disconnected or alone, not only in the last year since this pandemic started, but, but ever. I think it's for anyone who feels 
disconnected at, at times to themselves and also to their family and their friends. Um, and it's also for anyone who has either lived experience of their own or, or loved ones who, who have to deal with um, mental illness and the effects that that can have on our lives, both as individuals and in relationship with one another. Um, this play is also for all the beautiful queers out there and their parents, too. What do you miss most about in-person theater or just, like, interacting with people in person? And how do you think that would have changed the production of this play? There's a number of moments where in the play, one of the characters says, come here, or I wish I could hug you, and and we can't. And, and there was a moment when I was rehearsing with Marty last night, and... And we both really, really want to, and we can't. And and for me, I I thrive off of physical affection, off of human touch, and that's been one of the hardest things about this pandemic. And so I miss that. I think for me, theater has always been very intimate about physical connection with other with other people, and so I miss that the most. And and the play talks about that a bit if we were able to do that, if this wasn't a pandemic, like, it would be a totally different play. It wouldn't even, I don't know if it would even be recognizable. Right. Could you tell us when this is going to be airing or, like, where we can view your play at? Yeah, thank like, you so dates? much. Yeah, so so Let Go of Me is presented at Live Arts. It's going to be March 25th to 28th, and it will be virtual. Um, so if you purchase a ticket, um, tickets are pay what you can. So it's accessible to, to whoever wants to see it. And Thursday, Friday, Saturday, March 25th, 26th, and 27th are at 8 p.m. And Sunday, March 28th is a matinee at 2 p.m. So you can watch from your computer. You can watch from your TV, whatever is comfortable for you. You can buy tickets to the show Let Go of Me at livearts.org slash let dash go. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producer this week is Tanisha Alston. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Soundboard.